Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. Hey everyone, today we are covering a topic that I've had multiple requests for, maybe no surprise with everything that is happening in the world, that topic being fear. We'll explore what fear even is, how it impacts our well-being and how we can use it to our advantage. So for this conversation, I'm joined by Mark Minukas, who has written a book on the very topic. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Great to be here. Wonderful. So let's start with a little bit of an introduction about who you are. Yeah. Um, who am I? So I'm, I'm a guy who, you know, I'm a former engineer who is now writing books on fear and working with culture and organizations. So not a typical career progression for an engineer, uh, but I can give you just a, a very quick, I guess, chronology. But I you know, grew up in Connecticut in the U.S. I studied engineering in school. I went to the Navy in my early part of my career. I was a civil engineer and a diver. And from there, I completely shifted gears into management consulting, first doing more operational transformations, and then over time, getting much deeper into uh, the human dimension of organizational transformation. And, um, you know, one thing I've learned over life, and I actually, it's something that I, you know, apply in my work, but I've come to, you know, see the patterns that I've developed in life and how they haven't served me always in the, the best ways. So as a man grew up in the world, I was taught not to be very emotional and to just keep my head down, get my work done. In the Navy, I was taught to be tough and, and not to show any vulnerability because that was how people were going to trust you. But I did sort of realize over time that I had become this really hyper-competitive know-it-all so to speak. Mm. And that, you know, that's became very limiting in my, my own career. I almost got fired a couple of times from my previous consulting firm. And, you know, it, it created this big crisis in my life, but it, it also became this amazing gift where I was, you know, kind of forced in some ways to reflect on the patterns I had created in my life and how they were serving me or not serving me. And that became the spark of the catalyst for me to do the work that I do today. So, it's it's been a, a wonderful learning experience, but I don't have the typical uh, job, uh, you know, that someone with an engineering background or a Navy background would typically have. Mm, yeah, but I mean, it just brings such an added level of complexity to the topic, I think, because uh, particularly what you were saying there was um, really touching. And, and I know that a lot of people and particularly a lot of men really feel that is the traditional perspective on bravery is that you don't show vulnerability. So why is that? Yeah, it's based on this belief that to be, you know, I guess manly and to be strong and to be trusted, that you can't show vulnerability. You can't, yeah, you can't say, I don't know. You can't ask for help because there's just this belief. You know, it really is, you know, once I started to challenge that belief, I realized, wow, it's it's really... It's not as accurate as I, I thought it was, but it, you know, it held, that belief held a, a pretty big power over me for a big portion of my, my adult life. And I had to challenge that belief and, and start to you know, just experiment and be more vulnerable in, in various settings to say, I don't know, or I need help. And lo and behold, it actually turned out that people could trust me even more when I was you know, more vulnerable and when I could ask for help and share my emotions in a way that was really constructive, but that, that took some real 
changes, but it fundamentally became a change in belief about what it what it meant to be effective or to be trusted in the world. Right. And and obviously demonstrating that vulnerability, showing that vulnerability, because we all feel it. And so it's interesting when you use the word trust that we trust someone who has everything in control. And that's sort of an expectation I think that we have for a lot of people in leadership or who, who are in control of something that then impacts you. And I can imagine that in the Navy, that would have been heightened to another level because you're trusting somebody with your life. So you hope that they have it in control, but that doesn't mean that you're not still uncertain about some things or you're working some things out or you're dealing with a breadth of emotions. I mean, that's that's very human. Yeah, it is. It's very human. And, you know, I think there is a component to trust, which is competence, right? There's, I think it is, mm. you know, you want to trust people who are competent and can give you clear direction when clear direction is needed or help remove some uncertainty when uncertainty is there. But another dimension of trust is, you know, the degree of openness we have with each with each other. And so, and sometimes that competence lives in tension with with openness. And so, you know, I've I've had to learn that trust is actually both. I mean, it's good to be competent, but if you don't know the answer to something, then it's actually better to maybe sometimes say, look, I don't know, but let's figure it out together or let's, you know, here's what I'm going to do to move us in the right direction. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can have both. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's quite common then, I think, in most corporations, organizations, organizational structures that we don't like to show too much vulnerability, that it, it kind of denotes weakness or the lack of control that we were talking about before, that competency that you mentioned. So I think in the book, Fear Unfair, you, you talk a lot about normalizing, I guess, vulnerability or normalizing words that denote weakness. So why is it that that is such a difficult thing for us to do inside of a structured organization? What's the what's the downside to that? Do you think that organizational leaders see? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a real downside of, of sharing or being vulnerable in a way that's not effective or sharing emotions in a way that's not effective, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think there is truly a, a risk with that. There's also another risk in not being vulnerable and not sharing your emotions, as well. So part of what, you know, we're, we teach people and part of what the, the book on fear is about is to use fear as a guide, not to suppress it or believe that, that it's not there, that you shouldn't experience it. But if you can use fear as a guide, you, you know, that can give you access to ways that you might be able to share emotions in a way that's more constructive and more effective. So we kind of get people out of this either or thinking either I'm emotional and not trusted and I look weak or I don't share my emotions and therefore I look, look strong. It's really just a false dichotomy. And, you know, there, there is a third path where you can share, you know, your emotions. You can be vulnerable, but do it in a way that really builds trust and builds team cohesion. And so we can talk about the mm. particulars of, you know, how to do that. But just believing that it can be done in a way that's constructive is the first step. Yeah. And I'd love to get into that. Before we do that, I think it's really fascinating that you've transitioned careers. I have a, like a little bit of a, an obsession or a fascination with this when people move from one field and then kind of switch into it, something completely different. So how did you go with that transition of like going from the Navy to, and, and you know, civil engineering to like the corporate world? How did that transition go for you? And what was the pull for you to do that? Yeah, I think every transition in my life has always been rocky. <laughs> That's I, I can't look back and say, wow, that was a really smooth transition, you know, from 
really at any stage in my life. But I think I, for me, I've always been a bit of a restless soul. I've always wanted to learn more and figure out how I can contribute more, contribute differently to the, the world. I think that's just something that's a bit of a force that's kind of pulled me through my own life. And that's probably you know one reason why I joined the military. And that was obviously a very rocky transition to go from a 17-year-old in this suburban town in Connecticut to a military academy in just a completely different environment. That was a big transition. And then after 10 plus years in the, the military, I become institutionalized, but I was also feeling restless. Like I felt like I needed to learn more, do something different in my life. And so, yeah, moving to management consulting was a huge transition that was very rocky for me. I had to learn this whole new language, this whole new way of interacting with people, this whole new way of thinking that I wasn't necessarily trained to do in the military. And so I had to learn how to take what worked from my past, but also be willing to discard some of the things that weren't working so well. And that's hard, because it requires, you know, you build new skill sets, but also, to, yeah, in some ways, to be vulnerable and to admit to yourself that, look, I, something's not working, I need to change. And so that's, I, you know, I think I've done it in my life, but it wasn't easy and it was always uncomfortable. And I can imagine also that there was a, a change in sort of finding your, a different way to find your purpose. Like you kind of alluded to this before, but, you know, with that intention that you're coming into something to really drive impact, driving impact inside of a business setting, um, especially in consultancy, I can imagine, is quite different to driving impact in the, the Navy or the military. So did you have to find like different ways not to motivate yourself, but to really think about how you were going to leave leave a meaningful legacy? Yeah. I'm not sure if I fully have answered the question, you know, what my, the purpose of my life is as well. I think that's always an interesting one. I think maybe that's why I, I try different things every every five to seven years, because I'm, I'm trying to see, you know, what may stick or may get me closer to something that I, I find hard to articulate. But yeah, I think any environment you're in, you know, you you discover that you can create a certain kind of impact, but it's different than other environments. So in the military, I, I felt like I, you know, was contributing, obviously, just to, you know, national defense, and you contribute to the well-being of the the men and women in your unit, and you know, there's just a certain level of impact you can have there. And a consulting firm is very different. I remember when I first transitioned from the Navy to McKinsey and Company. I was just amazed at how stressed out people were at McKinsey over like this spreadsheet or this PowerPoint presentation. You know, it just, it wasn't, you know, in the military, there's, you know, you do some dangerous things and, you know, people could get hurt. And I just, I never saw people so stressed out about, you know, a spreadsheet or a PowerPoint presentation. Mm -hmm. It was just very different, you know, just, but the, the impact mm -hmm. I could have within an organization, you know, the, the, the kind of change I can bring to an organization was arguably much higher in the consulting world, because you really can work with senior leadership teams. You can change their, you know, help shape their vision and their goals and their processes in a way that I felt was very difficult to do in the, the Navy when you're in some ways a little cog in a very big machine, this institutional machine. So yeah, I think every situation or every system can afford different degrees of freedom, I guess, to, to impact the world for sure. It's interesting too, that you do sort of you become conditioned or you like assimilate 
to the fear system that you're coming into. So how much of fear then and, and all of those feelings that I can imagine that you would have been feeling then and the wave of emotions coming from the military into the the corporate consulting, which probably ranged from, you know, like this is ridiculous to then probably assimilating to the that wave of emotions. How much of it is contextual? Yeah, I think it's very it's a, it's a fascinating point. And I think the the conditioning isn't necessarily the emotions. I think the emotions in some ways are similar. It's the belief systems that we become acculturated to. And, you know, eventually, like, you know, fish in the water, we sort of, we start to swim around and, you know, one fish asks the other, how's the water today? And the other says, well, what's water? You know, we just, we assimilate these belief systems and they just, we put them on and we just don't realize that we're, we're wearing them anymore. And then I guess in transitions in your life, you know, maybe you become a little bit more aware, but I know in the Navy, it was interesting, you know, you're, you're in a lot of, uh, you know, you can be in dangerous situations or just, you know, high pressure situations and it. The belief was, hey, we can get through this. It's it's okay. You know, in the consulting world, it was interesting. I, you know, I, I started to put on this belief system of the promotion I had or the, uh, you know, how well I was doing relative to my peers was a really big thing. So I started to experience fear, you know, the same fear that I would maybe experience in the military, but applied in a very different context where I'd started to feel like if I didn't succeed over you know, somebody else, if I didn't get a title or the recognition, that started to create some really big emotions for me. And I became very blind to that dynamic. I just kind of felt like, well, that's the way I have to be. I have to be a competitive person. I have to succeed. I have to get, you know, more status and, and all this other stuff because everyone around me seemed to be playing that same game. And so I think in that way, I became acculturated to a different belief system about what it meant to be successful in the world and what it meant to be just, uh, you know, kind of safe and successful. And so, yeah, that's, that's when I reflect on that transition in my life, that's probably it, but it's, it's the belief system that gets acculturated. And you see that when people join any organization, they, you, you start to take on the beliefs that people have and also the, the ways in which people express and orient themselves to fears as well. And I think, you know, often we think about fear as being fear of the unknown or fear of uncertainty. And certainly those things are interconnected. But it feels like so much of what we start to fear is fear of the known. <laughs> those things that actually where we anticipate that are familiar to us, but we almost build them up in our own minds. Like the, yeah. the example that you gave before is like you're about to present in a big meeting and you build up like this person that you're presenting to maybe you start to overthink things. So how common is fear of the known? Yeah, I, I think it's very common. And actually, we, so we make this distinction, you know, in our book, in our, our work, between physical fear and emotional fear. So physical fear is fear that we experience when there's a real physical threat to our body. And it's a very adaptive thing. You know, we experience fear. Fear is just the emotion that we, we have when there's a threat and it, it helps us react. When there's an emotional fear, what's being threatened is more our ego, our sense of self, or our identity. It's really just a story that we're telling about ourselves. And so, you know, the fear of the known, you know, the way I interpret that is we fear, you know, how some situation in life might challenge our, our sense of self or our sense of identity. And I think that's extremely common. And what's interesting about emotional fear is it's mediated by the stories in our, our minds. It's mediated by our perceptions. And because it's mediated by those stories, they can also have a lot of power over us. But they, they're also 
something that we can, we can also change and intervene in ourselves. We can change the stories that we have about ourselves or a, a situation, you know, that meeting that you go into or you're really nervous, you can reframe that situation or even the, the experience of fear that you have to be something different. And that allows you to be, you know, show up in a different way and behave perhaps more effectively. Mm. Yeah, because fear is a, it's a natural emotion, right? Like it exists inside of us for a reason to pre like prepare us and to, to help us to go into those types of situations fully alert and all of those kind of physiological benefits that we get out of that. And I like how in the book you talk about it as, you know, fear is not the problem. Right. Um, it's about mismanaging fear. So, but but we do feel like fear is sort of out of our control, but it, there is a way for us to manage, I guess, the feelings, the emotions around fear. And I guess even to an extent, the physiology part of it. You can, yeah. We had these amazing superpowers as human beings, um, superpowers of imagination and language. And mm. oftentimes we mismanage that, that power. You know, we use our emotion, our, our language to frame situations in ways that are even more threatening. And so part of the, the path to managing your fear more effectively is to tell yourself different stories about what's going on, different stories about what's going on in your body, for instance. So if you're experiencing that nervousness in your body, you know, maybe you feel some, some tingling in your stomach or some tension through your forehead, you can interpret that as, oh, here we go again. You know, these people are going to judge me very negatively and I need to be really careful about what I say. Or you can interpret those body sensations as, oh, like I'm, I'm feeling, I really care about what's going on in this meeting. And I'm, you know, this is a sign that I'm, I really care and I'm going to do my best, right? Just making stuff up. But there's a way to reframe any experience that you have in a way that helps you step into a place of being more effective rather than collapsing into that that emotion and those negative stories that may not be serving you very well, right? Sounds mm -hmm. very easy. I mean, it's obviously quite, quite hard in <laughs> practice, but, but it, mm -hmm. it can work. And it takes, again, it takes, you know, a degree of awareness about what's going on in your body, what's, what's going on with the stories that you have in your mind and, you know, choosing to tell different stories and practicing that over time. Mm. Yeah. And I, I really like how you put it in the book. There's a statement in there that says, you know, if you do this enough, if you kind of leverage fear enough, it becomes a mood. So it almost becomes like something that you recognize is how I'm reading that, recognize. And like you said before, you can then turn it into a superpower to help you to make ultimately better decisions in that short-term kind of moment. Yeah. I think the game is to be curious when those emotions show up when those body sensations show up is to be get more curious about those rather than mm -hmm. just defaulting to the reactive patterns or the, the the typical way in which you react to those emotions mm -hmm. right that's yeah. why and so we you know we describe fear as can be a real great cue for learning and growth because when we experience you know some threat when we experience that little twinge of fear we could either go back to a reactive pattern or we can say, oh, interesting. You know, there's something here. What can I learn here? What can I learn from this? And if you engage with those emotions with curiosity, it just opens up a lot, a lot more possibilities for acting in a way in any given situation that may be better than what your default pattern is. Mm, yeah. And I like that idea of 
trying to use it as a way to better understand yourself too. So kind of pausing and going like, why am I so nervous? I've done this before. Just trying to understand why you're even feeling that breadth of, uh, I guess, fearful emotions, which it feels like it's very connected into well-being. So your own individual, particularly emotional well-being. And we're talking about employee well-being quite a lot these days. Obviously, we're talking about well-being in general, but employee well-being to manage our stress levels and our anxiety levels and that fatigue that we're feeling. So it feels like that's very connected into fear, particularly if you're constantly feeling those emotions of fearfulness. It's very much connected, yeah. And I I think what we're attempting to do is get to some of the deeper roots of well-being. I think some of the prescriptions, you know, in the well-being world are, are very good ones, but they don't often create a whole system that helps people show up with more curiosity. And so that's part of what we're trying to do is if you can really create an organizational system and a a critical mass of people who show up with real curiosity about what's going on for them in any given moment, that can actually create a a system that's really supporting well-being. You know, it's not just the program's well-being, like, hey, we have a meditation program or stress reduction programs. We're really getting to the root of why we're showing up so stressed in the first place. Mm. And so like one thing that's just popped into my head then is kind of going back to what you said at the start of like these things sound very easy, but they they are quite challenging, particularly if people are faced with the level of uncertainty that's quite significant, like am I going to still have a job or is my job going to become something that I didn't sign up for or when will I get that promotion so that I can get a raise so that I can afford to live in the house that I'm living in? You know, all of those sorts of like very external, quite significant life-changing things that feel like they're very much in flux for people right now over the next few years, particularly coming into the sort of recession inflation situation that we're in. So how how should people think about that? It's like there's the emotions that I can control and the situational awareness that I can have, but then there's also all of that stuff that's outside of my control. Yeah. I think the reality is there there really is so much in our lives that is beyond our control. I think that's the that's the the difficult truth. I think what is amazing though is regardless of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in we always have a choice in terms of how we respond. So in our, our work, we, um, you know, we referenced the, the work of this man, Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian psychiatrist uh, during World War II. He survived four concentration camps and wrote this amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. And that was the deep insight in, in his work and in his life is, you know, he reflected on, you know, the people who survived these concentration camps weren't the ones who were the strongest people physically strongest, they were the people who found meaning in their experience. And so regardless of circumstances, you always have a choice in terms of how you respond. So I think that's part of what, you know, the skill set to develop for, uh, for all of us is, you know, we may not control whether or not we get fired or if some bad event happens. I think the question is always, given that it's happened, now what? How do I show up? How can I be effective? How do I, how do I want to move forward from this? And so it doesn't eliminate all the bad things that could happen to you, but it does hopefully provide some hope that regardless of what's going on, you can show up in a way that where you can find meaning in that experience and, and move forward constructively. Mm, right. And it kind of goes back to that self-awareness piece because so much of what Viktor Frankl talks about is 
Like, what is it that personally motivates you to keep going in your life? And it could be something really small just to get through to the end of the day so you can read your book in bed, but just really being a very aware or self-aware feels like it's a great enabler for us to manage our emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And and can you see the upside or even the gift in really difficult life circumstances? I I can tell you, you know, it took me a long time to recover from um, this sounds extremely trivial in the, the grand scheme of probably what a lot of people deal with in life. But, you know, I got a really bad performance review one time, <laughs> you know, this uh, mm-hmm. consulting firm. And it hit my ego so hard. It was just, it was this devastating thing. And I just had the story that I'm never going to be successful. And it took me a while to see, wow, like there's really a gift in this. You know, that, that bad performance review actually set my life on a very different trajectory. And it's become an amazing experience really because I, I got to learn and it, it forced me to learn in many ways a lot of things that I otherwise probably wouldn't have been exposed to so in retrospect I can see that situation as a gift but I'm learning to see difficult situations more as a gift even as they're happening which you know I think that's the insight yeah at least to me that's the way Victor Frankel's uh, you know work spoke to me yeah, and I think so many of us have been in that position. I know I certainly have, you know, when you get feedback at work and it, it, like you said, it hits your ego, but it also kind of makes you not question your self-worth. Maybe that is overstating it. Maybe it's not though. It's a great enabler for self-reflection and obviously building a lot of humility as well and starting from there, but almost also the flip side of that is building building new confidence. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, these difficult life circumstances have a way of revealing limiting mindsets and beliefs that we might have. So for myself, for instance, I came to see how absolutely connected my sense of worth was to what other people thought of me. And I was so blind to that dynamic for, for a long time. But it was this major driver in terms of how I, you know, showed up and even, you know, became the, the root of why I would show up to meetings and, you know, so nervous because I was putting all this power in other people to judge me and determine my self-worth. And so, but these difficult circumstances helped me see that pattern and it's given me an opportunity now to, to work through that stuff and, and be more effective and, and to, you know, work on the things that allow me to live my life more fully and more purposefully for sure. So that leads me beautifully to something that I wanted to talk to you about. And I'm curious now, because you talk about archetypes of fear in the book. So there's the fight club, which is more of an aggressive, defensive, natural response. And then there's the nice club, which is more passive, defensive. So I can imagine if you're the type of person that kind of really needs affirmation from others or to be seen as like the guy that's always helpful or the guy that's, you know, gets along with everybody, then you're in the nice club. Is that sort of where you sat? Um, so I actually, I, I was a funny mix of, you know, a fight club archetype, which was more the competitor, right? Winning was a sign that I was, I was, you know, worth to the world. But then I, I was also trying to win other people's approval by winning. And so I had, you know, sort of that, uh, you know, the, the likable archetype in my pattern. And so those two together, you know, drove how I showed up in situations. It's interesting to doing that assessment for yourself. So I did it. I was kind of reading it, thinking through my own. And um, I was reflecting on um, also that competitor piece and perfectionist. And anybody listening to this who knows me, Uh (laughs) I feel like, yeah, of course, perfectionist is up there for you. And I I don't know if it's that I'm very detail focused, um, but certainly I, I think it's something that 
connected into the topic of fear. That's that's kind of where it was like really meaningful for me because it made me think, okay, maybe I am kind of wired a certain way to do things a certain way. But how is that leading to a situation where fear is driving my reactions to things? So if things are not perfect, what am I afraid of? Am I afraid that the the work is going to reflect poorly on me and it will be detrimental to my success? Like kind of goes back to that self-reflection piece. I thought that the archetypes were really helpful. Awesome. What's the advice that you give for people once they sort of work out what archetype they are? What next after that? First step is awareness. You know, what what is a behavioral pattern that you may be demonstrating that isn't allowing you to be, you know, the effective leader that you want to be. And we take people through a process of, you know, understanding, well, what are some of the underlying belief systems that, you know, give rise to that behavior in certain situations? And what are some of the underlying needs and fears that are, that are going on? And then we help take people through, uh, you know, a process where rather than just immediately jump to how am I going to behave differently? Because, you know, that can, you can create change at a surface level, but it's not really getting to the root. We say, well, what's a more powerful mindset for you to hold? You know, and also to let's acknowledge, you know, how is the mindset that you have? You know, where does it come from for, for starters? You know, a lot of times we develop these over our whole lives. Uh, where does it come from? How is it serving you? It's probably serving you in some ways, but also how is it not serving you? And what's a more powerful mindset for you to hold? And that, mm. you know, that process gives people, you know, insight into, wow, you know, it's, it's serving me in this way. It's not serving me in that way. And there is a more powerful mindset for me to hold. You know, and I just said, connected back to some of what I was reflecting on, you know, one mindset I used to hold is that other people's judgment of me is, is really important or, you know, it determines who I am as a person. And, you know, the fear was fear of rejection and, and fear of not belonging, right? But just getting some insight into that isn't to say, oh, what was me? Like I'm a broken person. It's really just say, wow, this is pattern of thought that I've developed in my life and a belief system, but I can change that. You know, I can, I can reframe all the experiences I had in my life and I can hold a more powerful mindset, which is like, I can do my best in any circumstance and I don't have to take, you know, what people, how people judge me personally, right? That's just not something I have to do. And I have, I have some power over that because I have that superpower. We all have that superpower of imagination and language. And so if I can apply that superpower in a, a different way, you know, I show up differently. I don't get as nervous getting in front of groups of people or, you know, starting a meeting anymore because it's, I'm just not as, uh, you know, the, the power that other people's judgment used to have over me, just it's, it's not there, right? There's more of a, a core, you know, I guess, groundedness that I've been able to find for myself. But it's, you know, this process, these questions will lead to very different insights for everybody. It just depends on, on your own life experience and your own thought process. Yeah. And practice, it sounds like, you know, like really it's not a quick fix. Yes. It's not just something that you go and do. It's it's a mindset that you build over time. How much do you think people overcompensate for fear? So it feels like some short-term decision-making, and you talk about this in the book, it's making be- like band-aid fixes to things, having a knee-jerk reaction to things, pretending that you know the answer when you don't know the answer. That's the behaviors that we see or the short-term decisions that are made, is that because usually because we are exhibiting fear or is it sometimes because we are like, we are aware of our fears and we're trying to counter them and almost, yeah, overcompensate for them. Does that happen? Yeah, I think we do. Although I, you know, my sense is, I, I don't know that a lot of people in the typical business setting are very tuned into their fears. Mm. I think that's, that's part of the challenge. 
because right? it's either seen as something that's good, right? There, there are a set of business leaders that see fear as a good thing, and then they try to use fear to either motivate themselves, that's a bit of the perf perfectionist or the competitor, or they, they apply it to other people to exert some level of control over the environment. Or they say, look, fear is a bad thing and we want to just suppress it. And we want to, everyone to be nice to each other. We don't want conflict. But I think both of those patterns you know, also are indicative of people who aren't really in tune with fear uh, as well. So I think step one is just recognizing, you know, that it's, it might be there for you and, and what is the typical response, you know, what are the beliefs that you have around fear and what are the typical ways in which you, you behave when experiencing fear. And I think that gives insight into how people might be compensating or, and again, there's that aggressive way of compensating, which is we're going to use fear to get results because that works at least in the short term, or we're going to suppress fear because, well, we don't want people to experience those negative emotions. I think those are the general ways in which people sort of compensate and it can show up in all kinds of different behavioral patterns. How much of that is, for lack of a more complex word, fixable? So I'm, I'm thinking back to your days in the Navy and I can imagine that a lot of your peers, do you say peers in the Navy? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, point. we have peers in the Navy. Yeah, We usually <laughs> tie up on peers, uh, but yeah, I know what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, um, I can imagine that, you know, some some people that you were with went through more traumatic events than others. And so like, particularly I'm pulling up that example because it, it it probably does, you know, with PTSD and a lot of the things that you go through are, are quite traumatic. So how much of fear is linked to trauma and therefore it kind of requires a different approach because we're not talking about something that's about a mindset shift. It's something that's more like psychologically yeah. embedded in you. Yeah. I mean, my understanding, so I'm not a deep research in, in trauma, so I should caveat all that stuff there. You know, I, I, my area of practice is how you take these concepts and apply them in an organizational setting. But my understanding of, of the research is that, you know, trauma is a bit of a, a, a spectrum. We all experience things that, you know, are just somewhat traumatic and we just have this negativity bias in our, our minds as well. So we remember the negative things more vibrantly than the positive things. So, you know, if we're all honest with ourselves, you know, we've all had bad experiences, you know, that shape how we show up in life today. Some people, um, you know, have had much deeper, you know, just traumatic experiences for whatever reason, you know, military people, you know, especially who have seen combat and just horrors, horrific things. Uh, but also, you know, another aspect of the, the research is it, it can impact different people differently, which is interesting, right? Two people can see the same exact thing, uh, but then walk away with a very different imprint of that and carry it with them in a very different way throughout their, their life. And so, you know, to me, at least the, that speaks to, again, that the way that, our, you know, our stories and our perception, you know, we mediate our experience of the world through those stories. And so if we can tell ourselves a different story about what we experienced that will impact us differently than someone who tells a different story. And I think that there is psychological research that sort of bears that out, you know, why some people recover from PCSD or, or you know, don't seem to be quite as affected by it um, than others. But again, it just, uh, you know, to me, the, the, what I distill from a lot of that research is that the power of uh, language and imagination that we have, we can apply it to, again, you know, reframe our life experiences as, you know, learning opportunities and, you know, create curiosity and, and growth from these really difficult circumstances or can create something very different and, and cause us to be very stuck. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I mean, that matches up really well with, um, I think what we're kind of raised to believe as well is it's not what happens to you, it's how you deal with it. And then on the flip side, of course, there are events that you would maybe, maybe I would dismiss because I feel like it's trivial. Like, why would you be traumatized by that? Or why would you be afraid of that? But it is impactful for other people. So it's about, I like how you say that it's about those stories that we frame around what we're experiencing. And that's not to trivialize it as well. I mean, I think it's, you know, again, these, it's sometimes it's very difficult to access or really even understand how our minds work and what you know, stories and belief systems we do have. And I'm sure there's a genetic component to that as well. Different people, just, you know, just their physical makeup, genetic makeup may change how they experience, you know, various life events. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A combination of factors, but so much of it feels like it's in our control. So speaking of what's in our control, I'm curious then, like, is there something that you are afraid of Maybe, maybe this is more of like a fun, <laughs> fun trivia question. Um, something that you're afraid of that you, you want to conquer that's on your, on your list. Oh, boy. That's a good one. Um, still a lot. I mean, I, like, if I'm honest with myself, I don't think I've completely overcome this fear of other people's judgment. You know, it still pops up in, in funny ways. So I get nervous, um, you know, big business development conversations, for instance, you know, well, what if these people don't like me or don't, you know, think my firm's great and want to hire us, you know, what then? Those stories are still sort of acting on me and and perhaps changing a little bit, you know, how I show up. And so I'm probably more aware of it now and how it impacts what I do, but it's still, there's a lot of practice I need to go through to, you know, perhaps overcome that. So that's, that's probably one. Yeah. And use the fear, right? Feel the fear and do it anyway. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah. have the tools. Yeah, exactly. The way that we've been talking about this topic of fear has been really eye-opening for me. It's it's kind of made me think about it in a different way. And it's made me think about my own personal fears a lot. So my question for you, my last question for you is very much connected into that. It's kind of looking at things with a fresh perspective. What is your go-to when you're trying to look outside of what's familiar to you and kind of broaden your perspective? I, there's probably a few things I, I like to do. Um, yeah, reading a good book, just a, a thought-provoking book. And I, I've spent a lot of time reading business books. And, you know, there's a lot of good business books out there, but I've I've rediscovered a love for fiction. I saw a quote the other day. It's I, I may not get it right, but, you know, fictions are the lies that, that tell the deeper truth. And so I... I found that certain books just give you insight into human nature, you know, fiction, good fiction. Um, and so that just, I always find that just activates my, my mind in a, a very different way. So I recent read, recently read some Kurt Vonnegut books, for instance. And I just, I found, you know, just his writing style, but also just some of the themes that he dealt with and just really, really engaging. So that's, that's certainly one. And the other is meditation. I, you know, as a guy who resisted meditation and thought it was kind of hokey and just silly, uh, for most of my life, I've gotten into it over the last uh, few years, and I've, I find that to be a really nice way of stepping back from what is otherwise a very busy, kind of cluttered mind, and just helps me notice how my mind's working and just, you know, helps me create a little distance from, you know, all that busyness. And that usually gives me some new insights into, yeah, just how I can perhaps grow and, and show up in a different way. Yeah, I love that so much. And so as a business guy, recommending fiction and as an ex-Navy guy, recommending meditation. So, you you know, you're definitely sort of like broadening your 
perspective to lots of different things um, and, you know, going against stereotypes as well. I love that so much. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, <laughs> part of me is like, well, how are people going to judge me for that? But I, I'm noticing that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think that with uh, with this audience, it will go down very, very well. Um, that's exactly what this yeah. community is all about. So Beautiful. thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your, not just your research and your knowledge on this topic, but also, you know, your personal perspective. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. We Google fear more than 100,000 times a week. And yet, it's still a topic that we don't know enough about. I love how Mark talked about reframing our mindsets when it comes to fear. If you enjoyed this conversation, please follow and share the show. I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside. Thank you.